Hello, everyone, and welcome to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark and winding paths that lead around the Delmarva Peninsula. Today, we'll be looking at a dated danger case, meaning that the case is pretty old, a hundred years in this case, and it involved one of the oldest motives on earth, love. But we're going to be looking at love in two different types from two different people. It's about the protective nature of a father towards his daughter and about the man who supposedly had wronged her. These types of overprotective father-daughter relationships are probably as old as time. Now, we have to ask ourselves sometimes, are there times when fathers may take that protectiveness too far? I bet each of us has at least heard a story or even been part of one where that seems to be the case. I think it would be safe to, to kind of broaden that perspective to say parents towards children, even though it's the overprotective father that we hear the most of in movies, books, TV shows, even some songs and music videos that I've seen. And while these types of entertainment usually use an exaggerated form of that concern and protective nature of a father, it can resonate with people because they've seen it before or heard about it and experienced it sometimes as well. But as a father, are there limits that you have as far as what you would do to protect your daughter or avenge her? Is it justified when one does that? But what if it's also not quite so clear cut and we end up asking ourselves, was there anything really that the father needed to protect his daughter from? We'll be covering this all in today's case, but it also will bring up questions about mental health, how it was viewed in that time frame 100 years ago, and how it should factor into punishment if a crime is committed. Looking at even how mental health is still misunderstood today, and to some people it's still taboo to talk about, I was actually quite surprised then to find out how this case turned out. And it frankly made me question what the motivation of the judiciary and the jurors, you know, what they may have had in this particular case. So today we will be looking at the case of Ned Jones and Lawrence Smack. Now, sometimes trying to find information on a case that is slightly over 100 years old can be quite difficult. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find any original documents from the case or any, say, revisiting articles from the case, you know, where maybe 50 years or 75 years after the event, articles are published that would give it a more modern view. All of the information I found came from newspaper articles of the day. All of those articles are unfortunately behind a paywall. So if you're a returning listener and have you know, heard of other cases where I needed to rely mainly on newspaper articles, you may know that what I'll do is link them in the description of the episode. And after that, put the name of the newspaper and the date just in case you may have a different route to access them. Um, the articles are from newspapers.com. And like I said, those were really the main pieces of source material that I found. 
that also then means we have to look at the journalism of the day and realize sometimes that it was just as much a form of entertainment as a form of information. Before any of the modern devices that we enjoy so much today, such as cell phones, tablets, computers, TV, and the advent of social media and reality shows, a newspaper was really the closest thing that some people would get to entertainment, um, other than an occasional trip to the theater or you know, some other type of outing. It was not as convenient back then. So there are sometimes morbid ways that people, you know, would find for entertainment. Just to kind of give an example of how many people looked at crime, you may hear in some of these older cases, and even going back further into the 18th and 19th centuries, that when a dramatic crime happened, people would actually show up and start looking for souvenirs. A case that took place in New Jersey that is very, very old um, happened to be near a tree, and literally the tree that you know, the victims were found under was stripped of its bark just so people could say that they had a piece of that crime scene. So that kind of gives us an insight into how some people may have viewed these crimes instead of looking at them as the impact it had towards a family and to that victim. It really just wanted to sell newspapers. The publishers had newspapers to sell. So again, I think we need to keep that in mind um, going forward, even with a newspaper headline very blatantly saying that this person killed another man with no like question, no word alleged or supposedly like we use today before there's a trial. Before we get much further into the case, there are just a few things that I'd like to go over. One is probably at least for the next few weeks, if not longer, I am going to have a problem with my jaw unfortunately. Um, So I apologize if at times I may not sound like my normal self or if my pronunciation may seem a little different. It may be because of that. Um, Hopefully it only lasts a short time frame from now, but fingers crossed, I guess. Um, But along the lines of sound or sound quality, I am trying out a little bit of a different setup to try to eliminate some of the reverberation or feedback um, that may be heard in the recordings. I really want to be able to tell people's stories without wondering if the sound quality is in any way prohibiting that or, um, you know, again, getting some feedback from some listeners that, especially as these are longer um, episodes usually, that it can be a little hard to listen to with some of that that background noise or the production quality. So um, please just bear with me as I'm trying out a few different setups. Um, And hopefully within the next couple of months, I was hoping, you know, the husband would maybe surprise me for Christmas. So if he's listening, um, anyway, I am trying to find, um, you know, a way to upgrade so that, you know, again, the production quality will be the best that it can be. And as with most cases or events that I cover, 
there will be discussion of violence and death. Any event that I cover may include those topics as well as other ones that some may find upsetting or disturbing. So I do just want to make it clear before I actually get into the story that this will include an event where someone did lose his life. So with all of that being said, let's get into today's story about Ned Jones and Lawrence Smack. Ned Jones was a farmer in Snow Hill, Maryland. To those in town, Jones was a pretty prosperous man. Besides the farm, he owned a garage in Berlin, which sold machinery as well. He had previously ran on the People's Party ticket, so you know, running for a party other than Democrat or Republican. Um, but he ran on that ticket for county commissioner but did not win. Lawrence Smack was a young man, and there was really no description about his life. Um, he was in his mid-20s and married, and though he was currently out of jail on bond. More about that in a few moments. One day, he was just sitting in front of a store, you know, something that people of the day did. We might be wondering why somebody so young, you know, would just be hanging out at a country store, basically. And again, going back to the whole no TV, no um, social media, things like that, it was a form of passing the time, of maybe running into somebody that you know, and starting a conversation, or even someone that you don't know, and finding out more about them. So it wasn't really strange to have people sitting out in front of a store. And there were a few people that day who were doing the same thing. While Lawrence Smack was sitting in front of the store on a Tuesday morning, September 12th, 1922, Edward, also known as Ned Jones, approached him, but Jones did pass by and went into the store. About this time, Smack decided it was time to go. He stood up from the porch on which he was sitting and went to a different store. The name of the store that he had just left was named the West Store, and the one that he was heading towards was the Quillen Store. And it was only about 100 feet away, so very, very close together. Knowing now what's about to occur, I have to wonder why Smack decided to leave his seat. Was he uncomfortable in seeing Ned Jones? And if so, why? Well, no matter what, it turns out that he definitely had reason to worry. When Ned Jones came out of the store, he called over to the younger man. Jones had not spent a really long time in the store, so Lawrence was still within his sight. Lawrence did decide to turn around and go back towards Jones. Lawrence was probably expecting another type of verbal altercation, maybe some shoving or punching, something along those lines. But as he got within a few feet of Jones, the enraged father pulled a gun and fired at Smack. Shocked and injured, Lawrence made his way back towards Quillen's store. He got to the store, and while trying to remain upright to get away from his attacker, he ended up falling at the entrance. What happened next erased any possibility of Lawrence Smack surviving this ordeal. As he lay on the 
porch of the store. Jones approached him and fired all of the remaining bullets from his gun into the young man. Then Ned got into his car and drove to the town of Berlin. Berlin and Snow Hill are very close together, and the actual shooting took place in a section or a small town named Ironshire. When Ned got to Berlin, he found the chief of police. His first name was not listed, but his last was, so it was Chief Brittingham. Jones surrendered, handing him the gun. And something that we're probably you know, not going to see today at all is in order to get Jones back to the county jail, the sheriff actually used Jones's own car. So he got the keys to Jones's car and put Jones in the car to drive back to the county jail. Honestly, I can't say whether or not the police force had any vehicles, much less, you know, how many they had. I'm sure they had to have some motorized vehicles, but it may not have been really prevalent at that time. In trying to find witnesses who may have seen the shooting, four men were found to have been also sitting on the porches at the time. But being a small town, they already knew about and could probably even feel the tension between the two men. The men were described as pretty much just taking cover as soon as they saw the altercation was about to occur. So they didn't actually see the full shooting because they were, for lack of any better term, hiding for cover. There was one man who actually was positioned to see the whole event happen, a young man named William Bratton, but he was both unable to hear or speak. Brittingham was an employee of the West store, but he may not have even been aware that something had started until he saw Smack fall. So in other words, he wouldn't have been diving for cover at the sound of a shot going off. Unfortunately, though, whatever he may have seen, um, you know, especially given at that time, he may not have had any way of communicating that to the authorities. Over the past few weeks, something had been brewing between the men, and it was you know, pretty much common knowledge around the area that something was going on between Ned Jones and Lawrence Smack. The cause of this animosity was that Sally, Ned Jones's 17-year-old daughter, had somehow ingested poison. I phrase it this way for a reason, which we'll go over in just a few moments. Ned Jones accused Lawrence Smack of poisoning his daughter. He had actually been arrested and was waiting for the October court to come into session. However, some said that Sally had become upset after a fight with her family and swallowed the poison herself. So this was coming all from an accusation made by Ned Jones against Lawrence Smack, even though Sally will say herself that Lawrence had not poisoned her. At the general time of these events, Lawrence Smack and his wife, whose name was only listed as Mrs. Smack, had been working for the Jones families, and they had been in a lot of contact with each other. In fact, though, Mrs. Smack was Mr. Jones's niece. She was the daughter of one of Ned Jones's sisters. 
So this would make Mrs. Smack and Sally cousins. This would again make Ned Jones her uncle. So living in an area where you have a lot of contact with um, your family, in this case, again, in the general time frame, they were working for the Joneses and Mrs. Smack's mother, so Ned Jones's sister, had heard about the rumblings around town that supposedly rumor had it that Sally and Lawrence Smack had been in an inappropriate relationship, as the saying goes. So Mrs. Smack's mother told her that Lawrence better make himself scarce. And while Mrs. Smack did tell her husband about what her mother had just informed her of, Lawrence didn't seem that worried about Ned Jones actually doing anything. On the night that Sally had taken the poison, whether she had taken it intentionally or unintentionally, Ned Jones made quick work of driving to his nieces and nephew-in-law's home, complete with a shotgun. Seeing this and fearful of the commotion that was about to ensue, Mrs. Smack's father and brother, so this would have been Lawrence's father-in-law and brother-in-law, and that would have also been Ned Jones's brother-in-law and nephew. So the two men went to greet Jones, and Jones told the two men that he was there to kill Lawrence. So we know that in advance, Ned Jones had made threats against Smack. Jones was told that Lawrence wasn't home at the time, so he left. Before he went, Mrs. Smack tried to you know, pull on the heartstrings of her uncle, asking him to remember that if he did anything to Lawrence, that she had a young child to take care of. She just wanted to remind him of the fact before he took any drastic actions that would hurt or even kill her husband. Before leaving, though, Ned Jones just advised her that if he were to kill Lawrence and not be sentenced to death, that he would make sure that his niece and grandniece, I'm sorry, grandnephew, were taken care of. The wording that he used was that they would never want for anything. The two men had kind of run into each other at different meetings or events in town, but they never got too close to one another. So this probably gave Lawrence a sense of security as well, and maybe even the rest of Lawrence's family, because Ned had not tried anything at these larger, larger community events. But apparently, nothing was going to stop him and his goal when he saw James again. And Smack did not die a quick death. Even though he had taken the first shot that had weakened him, Jones later emptied all of the bullets into the of the chamber into Smack. And Lawrence actually managed to survive for about 15 agonizing minutes. The magistrate who presided over the coroner's jury, a man named William McCallan, said that the jury found that, quote, Jones feloniously, voluntarily, and with malice aforethought, shot Lawrence Smack in cold blood, end quote. And not helping her father's cause at all by providing any mitigating factors that might have led to why Ned Jones would have shot Lawrence Smack. 
Sally Jones said that she had never engaged in any illicit relationship with Lawrence Smack. She also denied that he was the one that gave her the poison. Ned Jones was not given bail, and instead of the trial going to the October session of the court, as was expected with Lawrence Smack, a new court date was set for the trial of Smack's accused murderer, Ned Jones. Now, just remember, too, people did not mess around with court dates back then. This was more of a circuit court, so it wasn't as though court was open every day. So this case or shooting took place in September, so it was going to be a trial that took place in December. In some of the earlier reportings about the case, when describing a motive for why Jones would kill his nephew-in-law, it almost seemed like the reasoning behind it was nullified or lessened. So I think we can all agree that going up to a man while he's laying on the ground and like emptying all of your bullets into him is just horrendous. That should not be done. But when trying to find a motive for this, instead of mentioning the poison in some of the early articles, or, you know, just kind of dancing around the relationship potentially of a 17-year-old and a 25-year-old, they would say, or the articles would say the reason for the shooting was because Lawrence Smack slighted Sally or that he insulted her. So while, again, killing somebody is wrong, at the same time, usually whether it's family, the defense attorney, um, someone supporting the defendant, they will want to try to provide factors as accurately or even as sensational as possible to try to show the reason behind their acts and possibly, if they can, get the charges reduced. On the day that Sally ingested the poison, and I'm still using the phrase as ingested since we don't know anymore, about how it was taken. We still don't have the answer as to whether Sally gave it to herself, if Mac had given it to her, or whether or not it was intentional. According to testimony on the day that later she took the poison on, Sally had been away from the house the whole day. The Smacks had been working on the farm, so Mrs. Smack would have been there, and the two women being cousins, Sally let her cousin know, quote, where she was going, end quote. However, what I find odd about this is if Sally did intend to harm herself, Mrs. Smack did nothing. She didn't let her aunt or uncle know that their daughter was contemplating harming herself. So, you know, just that fact alone I find pretty suspicious Lawrence Smack had supposedly been away for most of the day playing baseball. Now, there was no mention of corroboration of this, so we don't know if he was actually playing um, playing baseball or if he had been with Sally or even been playing baseball part of the day to kind of establish an alibi with his wife, but then met up with Sally. So many populate, or I'm sorry, so many possibilities here, 
but there's just not a lot of follow-up or mentioning in any of the articles you know, whether or not the police consulted the men that Lawrence was supposedly playing baseball with and see if they could provide him an alibi. To com- complicate some matters, the state's attorney, a Mr. Kerbin, recused himself from the case, letting the attorney general know that he was very good friends with Ned Jones, and so, of course, he saw it as a conflict of interest. To Mr. Kerbin's credit, he recognized that everybody should have the fairest trial as possible, including, in this case, the victim, as he would be going, be undergoing a trial pretty much of his peers in the fact that they would judge him and his supposed actions in regards to what the motive was for the shooting. The attorney general agreed that it was a good move for Kerbin to step down from the case, and the attorney general sent one of his deputies to then prosecute it. I had to try to read between the lines of some of the articles, um, you know, because again, not everything was given, and sometimes the information reported was not in an order that you would expect to see it. So it did look as though the actual venue of the court proceedings was changed. It had originally been thought that it would have been very difficult to impanel a jury um, that would remain at least away from their families in Snow Hill for a few number of days at a minimum. Again, going back to the time frame, trials tended not to be long, long episodes, unlike some of the ones that we see on TV or the movies where it could take you know, weeks and months, or some of the true crime cases that some of us may have heard about or watched. We're not talking about weeks and weeks on end where a jury would have to be sequestered in a hotel away from home. So while all of the counties involved were pretty close, we also do have to remember that the transportation then, as it is now, was definitely not the same And they would have had to try to find a way to make sure that the jury had transportation to the scene of the proceedings and things like that. So the court still convened in another town on the eastern shore, Cambridge, Maryland. And while originally was slated to go to trial in November, it actually didn't convene until December 6th of 1922. To me, at least, the fact that they changed venues on this case was very telling as to how widespread the story had been told and you know, that the attorney general and his deputy who was prosecuting didn't want to take the chance that anybody more local would either have you know, specific dealings with the individuals, such as being their friend or as Ned Jones had you know, a couple of businesses having the farm and the garage. He may have worked with a number of people or had business relationships. He had run for a political campaign. So people would have known him. Going to Cambridge, while still pretty close, did give some distance there. And given all of the effort it would have taken back then to make sure everybody had the proper transportation and 
you know, the ability to get to the trial every day if not having to put them up in a hotel, it really says something about how people were talking about this case. And in something that I found very, very surprising when I brought up one of the first articles is how we always say the words supposed or alleged, things like that when talking about a criminal or potential criminal before they've actually been convicted of a crime. The headlines of that day did not mince any words. A headline actually came out saying that Ned Jones had murdered Lawrence Smack. And yes, while we may look at it and say that it's not in dispute that he did, even with only having um, witnesses who ducked for cover, there was still enough evidence and enough of a sighting of Ned Jones there to, I would think, arrest him on those charges. But part of our legal system and something that, even if it sometimes seems hard to do, or sometimes even even if it seems like it's the wrong thing to do, we always have to have that presumption of innocence because if not, it opens the door for innocent men and women to be put behind bars. So for people to read a headline that said Ned Jones killed Lawrence Smack, that would definitely have an influence on anybody who would be part of the jury They could have heard it from people in the community, even if they didn't read the newspapers themselves. But within the new trial venue in Cambridge, Maryland, the court again convened on December 6th, and opening statements were made by the state and county attorneys on that date. And the prosecution finished its case on the same day, and it was so quick that the defense had time to call its first witness still on the first day. The defense case was arguing that Ned Jones had been pushed to the breaking point, hearing rumors that Lawrence Smack had boasted about sleeping with Ned Jones's 17-year-old daughter, Sally, again remembering that Lawrence Smack was in his mid-20s. Ned Jones said that hearing that had made him, quote, become insane. End quote. The defendant did take the stand in his defense, with him spending a number of hours on the stand on the second morning of the trial. Mrs. Jones followed her husband. The defense brought up witnesses who said that Jones was, quote, not in his right mind, end quote. They still considered him to be not in his right mind, again using wording of the day, when he shot Lawrence Smack and he had not been himself for quite some time even. A doctor named Paul Jones, who it does not appear was any relation to Ned Jones, testified about a condition that Ned's mother had had. Using the terminology of the day, the doctor stated that his mother had brainstorms. Edward was exhibiting similar behavior prior to the shooting. Adding to the belief that Lawrence Smack had poisoned his daughter, a man named Walter Timmons told Jones that he needed to, quote, look out for Smack as he was carrying a pistol for him, end quote. 
So what this did was let a man who, as many people described, had not been acting his normal self over, you know, quite a bit of time. So telling him that a man who had supposedly slept with his daughter, who had supposedly, quote, slighted her, who had possibly poisoned her, and now someone is telling him that this same man has a gun. Ned Jones' argument was that made him snap, basically. Could all of these factors together lead to paranoia, possibly, on Edward Jones's behalf? He had even spoken with his niece before and asked her to make sure that her husband Lawrence stopped harassing Sally. He said that Smack had been, quote, calling her up under another name, end quote. I'm not sure what to make of that saying. I've heard a similar saying before about calling someone outside of their name, but that's usually um, with other terminology, or it could also mean calling someone something that's not very nice, just to say it that way, or using a nickname. Given the mindset here, and some of the events surrounding it, I'm going to have to say it was more of an insult that Smack had supposedly been saying to Sally. So to break down this case before we get to the verdict and the events after the case, let's go over a few things here and kind of revisit a couple pieces of important information. I've mentioned a few times that the trial was very, very short. It lasted three days. It also only took about two hours to impanel a jury, which if you see any high profile case today, there are so many questions asked about the individuals to make sure that there's not any type of preconceived bias towards either the defendant or the victim of the case. Considering this case would have been all over the newspapers, even when being moved to a different county, it definitely would not have completely eliminated the pool of people who would have heard about the case. And getting back to the fact again of a three-day trial, there were 76 witnesses in the courtroom at this time. 76. And this was amongst 200 other spectators trying to get a glimpse of those involved in the case so that they could probably relay the story to their curious neighbors and their cousin in another state and just anybody they could tell about the drama that was unfolding in their little piece of the country. But 76 witnesses in three days that included opening statements and while no mention was given by you know, closing statements or even an opening statement from the defense, there probably had to be at least one or more of those types of speeches that took place. I'm going out on a limb here and assuming that not all 76 testified. I'm wondering if either one or both sides had people pre prepared to testify if for some reason things weren't going their particular way. I also had a question just about the wording too, where it's, the article said there were 76 witnesses in the courtroom. I know at least in many of the trials that I've read about or heard about that 
those who will be giving witness testimony cannot be in the courtroom at the time of you know, other people's testimony. And that helps ensure that someone's not, say, mending or bending um, the storyline to fit the narrative that they want to tell. So, for example, if they really wanted to see Ned Jones acquitted, then if they heard one witness you know, say one thing that helps support Jones, even if they may not have originally intended to mention that, they may then add it on to one of their stories to, you know, try to embellish the character or impugn the character of the defendant. So I would find it very curious if there was confirmation about whether or not um, everybody had the chance to take the stand, which again, it, there's 72 hours in a three-day time period, so that would have been almost impossible. I'm not going to say anything is impossible, but it does really seem like three days would not have been near enough for the trial to take place if all 76 people had actually taken the stand. The newspaper articles that I did find on the case as well never actually came out and reported any more about the supposed poisoning of Sally. There were some few brief mentions after the first initial articles that kind of set up the background, but it's never made clear as to whether or not Sally was poisoned with a poison or was it some other type of poisoning such as, you know, food poisoning or something like that. The wording does, though, make it sound more like actually taking a poison, not being poisoned, um, you know, by spoiled food or something like that. Also, Sally testified that Lawrence did not give her the poison. There was the report that she had had a fight with her family just before she took the poison. But again, it's never actually said whether or not she was attempting to take her life. It never said what type of poison it was, the dosage of the poison. So there's still so much left up in the air. And as this was, and or should have been at least, a key aspect to both sides of the courtroom, the prosecution as a motive and the defense as a reason why Ned felt like he needed to take the actions that he did, but it's just kind of lost in everything. And, you know, it's a key piece of information that just seems odd not to find it anywhere. But we also have to ask ourselves if even a third of the 76 witnesses testified how much information really could, you know, one individual give, especially when Ned Jones actually had a very long session on the stand. So that even makes the amount of time that each witness had available to them even shorter. Earlier, I mentioned that I found it odd that if Sally told Mrs. Smack, quote, where she was going, end quote, that line insinuated that Mrs. Smack knew that Sally was going to take poison, but never raised the alarm to anybody. So one of the concerning aspects to me is 
wondering if Mrs. Smack was jealous of her cousin, if Lawrence actually had been given Sally a lot of attention, would Mrs. Smack have heard those words and decided not to do anything about it? Would she look at it as one less rival for her husband? And that's horrible to say because, you know, we're talking about a young teenage girl. And, you know, if she was at the point where she did actually take poison, the fact that her cousin was more concerned about her marriage, which I know things were different back then, but it's really heartbreaking pretty much from any angle. And just one piece of speculation along those same lines, because right now I'm just telling some of my thoughts, so I'm not making any accusations against someone, but also looking at it, let's just say maybe it was foul play that Sally was intentionally poisoned by another. Who's to say that it was necessarily Lawrence? There was another person with the last name of Smack in the house at the time who would have been able to switch something out or, you know, add some poison into something. Though that would have been rather risky because you don't know who would have grabbed it unless Mrs. Smack handed something directly to Sally. And if by chance Mrs. Smack actually did blame Sally for the troubles in her marriage and the problems she was having with her uncle's condemnation of her husband, I was struck by the wording in one of the newspaper articles. And it really was, in some ways, looking at Sally as having some type of culpability in the events that happened. One, one newspaper article um, said that Sally was the, quote, cause of all the misery, end quote. And just the wording and context with that, it makes it sound as though it was something that Sally could control. It definitely wasn't. And maybe it's just the way that I'm reading it and wondering, you know, why a newspaper would you know, say words that if a young woman had previously tried to kill herself, and then reads these words that she's the cause of all this misery, what must that have done to her? What impact would it have on her mental and emotional well-being? It's something that I hope we don't see in any current newspapers or you know, media reports about something. You may have figured out kind of my opinion on the topic that Sally could, should not be held responsible for actions of others, that if she had tried to kill herself, she had you know, told her father that Lawrence had not given her the poison. So she had tried to take actions to prevent her father from believing that. Um, also, she was 17. He was 25. He was married. She was not. So if any type of relationship had begun, Sally would have been a lot less experienced than Lawrence. But if every father who thought that their child was having an improper relationship with someone shot the person they were having the affair with, there would be a lot less people on this earth. 
Sally actually signed an affidavit. So not just saying that she or that Lawrence did not give her the poison. She signed an affidavit, which my interpretation of that means she knows exactly who gave her the poison. So to me, at least, it sounds like an attempt on her own life. Again, none of this is ever made clear in any of the articles. But at that time, I have to wonder, too, was that a taboo subject in, you know, any newspaper columns or, you know, was mention of that not said specifically to help maintain Sally's reputation? The fact that she signed an affidavit that Smack did not give her the poison, it really makes me feel like she understood the actions of her father were wrong and could not be tolerated. It could have been just she was upset and hurt by Smack's death. But the fact that she would sign that type of affidavit knowing her father's on trial for his life makes me believe the validity of it. That she actually is truthful in saying that Smack did not give her the poison. But sometimes when looking at a trial, it actually has to be looked at through the eyes of a defendant. It may not be necessarily that the defendant, if they're, say, using a self-defense claim, it does not necessarily need to be that the defendant was in danger, only that the defendant thought their lives or their life was in danger. So it's the perception as well. And while going up to an unarmed man and shooting him is just not an acceptable response. Some people may look at it still as Ned Jones' perception was that his daughter was in danger. So again, it's not always just that reality of what the events were that led up to this. It's the perception of those events. So even as the trial closed, there were still some questions that were left open and unresolved, whether it was due to protect someone's reputation or because somebody, meaning one of the attorneys, didn't call something into question because they were afraid of the way it would make the other person, meaning you know the prosecution looking at the defendant or the defense looking at you know the prosecuting attorney, if it would make their case look better. So they may have just not mentioned anything in the trial to you know, try to preclude any sullying of reputations that could impact their case. On the other hand, the prosecution may not have wanted to ask certain questions of Sally if they thought it would make Lawrence Smack look worse. So questions of perception were just riddled all throughout this case. The mental state that Ned Jones appeared to have had just prior to all of these events may have, in fact, affected those perceptions. I see this most glaringly in the fact that he told Lawrence to stop calling her by another name. So I'm thinking if he's calling her by an actual another name, let's just say he's calling her Mary or Elaine or Elizabeth, when... Joan supposedly hears Lawrence doing this, does that mean that he believes it's code for Sally? That 
in order to hide an affair that Smack is, you know, using another name? Or is it actually that Smack is calling her some type of nickname or even a derogative term? Still, one of those questions we're not going to have answered. Additionally, with information from the doctor that Jones's mother also had in what he said was brainstorms, but what we may see today as either mental health issues or emotional health concerns, you know, those do tend to run in families. And it also kind of takes my perception of what Sally may have been doing to also lead to my thought that she possibly could have been trying to take her own life. But the jury would have heard the information about Jones's mother and took that into consideration when coming up with the verdict in the trial. So with that being said, the jury had the, op- or had the option of finding him not guilty because he was insane at the time of the murder. And so that's the reason for the doctor getting on the stand and explaining what Ned Jones's mother had gone through as well. But the treatment and understanding of mental health in the 1920s was sorely lacking. The verdict and the fact that it said that Ned Jones was now sane precluded him from going into any type of treatment facility or even any type of follow-up. Looking at it from a 2022 standpoint, that might give me a little bit of pause. But at the same time, again, viewing it from 2022 and having the knowledge that we have about what those types of institutions were like, it could have actually done more harm than good. The understanding of mental health now is light years better than it was in 1922. At the same time, we have so much farther to go still. Some people still find it taboo to discuss anything in regards to mental health when there actually needs to be more conversation. It does seem as though they did understand that some characteristics or traits could be hereditary in the fact that Ned's mother was brought up. At the time that the verdict was read, many people cheered that Ned was not going to be um, found guilty. I don't know if this is more a reflection on him or on Lawrence or society. Did they find Ned to be such a fine, upstanding man and that this was just one lapse, even though it was a huge lapse, and they were willing to, you know, proceed comfortably without having any concern that there would be some type of similar incident in the future? Did Lawrence have a really bad reputation or did many people not like him and feel that Ned was justified? Or is it a case where society has set these boundaries of what is right and is not right? And in feeling that Ned was just protecting his daughter, that he was justified in taking some type of extreme retribution on the man that he thought wronged his daughter. You also have to try to think about how the niece felt, and she was not mentioned hardly at all 
um, even during the case, but nothing really after. If I step back and look at this case from everything we know from 2022 in regards to you know, the advancements we've made in understanding mental health and seeing how harmful the mental health facilities, doctors, and treatment centers could have been at that time in 1922 and the harm that they did do to many people, there could be a very good argument made that in looking at Ned Jones's behavior prior to the murder, he most likely was going through a mental health crisis, but had gotten past that point, and there was no point in punishing him anymore. If his behaviors prior to the murder were accurately portrayed, then yes, I do believe he was undergoing or going through some type of mental health crisis. But it brings up questions about today as well, what to do if someone is found either not guilty by reason of insanity or guilty with you know, mitigating factors of mental health issues, who determines what the best course of treatment is? Is it doctors only? Is it members of the judiciary or lawmakers who should be held responsible if the wrong choices are made? And somebody who was deemed able to reenter their community ends up committing another violent crime. You know, who is the person or entity that will stand up and say that we erred in making the recommendation that this person did not need treatment any longer? It also brings up thoughts about individual autonomy. Something we hear about quite often is that someone may be prescribed a medication and many medications can have very far-reaching side effects. So as soon as a person starts to feel better and feel as though they can control um, whatever is going on in their lives, they may stop taking that medication. And though any changes will not be instantaneous, there may come a time again where some may question whether or not they should have stopped taking their medication. Most people will say, no, they should continue their medication, but trying to be empathetic for every possible you know, person who may be involved in a case, again, those side effects are very far-reaching and can have a pretty big impact on a person's life. So I think we can see how this argument or discussion can keep going round and round and round. That of looking at it from the viewpoint of the person who committed a crime while going through a mental health crisis, one would hope that he or she would be able to receive the treatment that they needed and be able then to move on with their lives and become you know, productive members of society or continue to be productive members of society. However, on the flip side of that is the victim or the victim's family, where to see someone that harmed them or their loved one, that will be extremely painful. So there's, to me, there's never, never going to be one correct answer to this. There would rarely, if ever, be a time where 
at least one person would not be negatively impacted by someone who committed a crime to be released. Many times it would be that person um, or their loved ones who would have that realization that someone who has affected your life in such a negative way is now able to proceed with theirs. I will admit, I was having a lot of difficulty going through this section because I know that everybody has different situations that are going on with their lives. And anyone listening to this may either be someone who's been in a position where either they themselves or a loved one has been injured or worse by someone who may have been going through a mental health crisis. I know that I have. Um, I, I've lost people that I knew due to that. And so there is the pain of knowing that another individual hurt yourself or someone that you loved. If you are someone who has harmed someone while going through a mental health conflict, then both your family and you yourself may forever feel that remorse, especially as it is painful then to have to step up and accept the responsibility that, yes, you or your loved one did something that harmed another person. And I'm including loved ones in here as well, because sometimes there's a guilt that somebody might feel, even if they couldn't do anything to stop it, there still may be that feeling of what if, you know, what if I had said something to them? What if I had recognized this sooner? So there are so many feelings going around in that. And I, I hope we can all be empathetic from both directions. I also know the vast majority of people going through the different types of mental health crisis or conflicts won't ever do anything that will directly hurt themselves or someone else. But whenever an incident does occur, then that just brings these discussions out into the forefront again. And we can either address the discussions head on or try to ignore them only for them to come up later on. And that's where I was looking at this from you know, so many different viewpoints and wanting to make sure that as many views as possible would be reflected because out of everybody listening, there could be hundreds of different views on even just a small part of this case or any similar case. So I guess personally, the biggest thing that, or two biggest things that I can probably take away from this is being thankful that we're now in a time where we're at least taking steps in the right direction to address the different mental health issues um, and illnesses that there are to make sure people are open and welcome help and support as they're going through these times and to also hoping that we continue to go in the right direction and not take any steps backwards. The other thing is not to be afraid to approach these discussions. I'm sure within social media and even in just individual conversations, we hear so many things such as being canceled or if you say one thing, you could have half the people that you're with 100% support you and the other half be very vehement against you. 
these are just very polarizing times. So to bring up a topic where there's bound to be controversy is extremely difficult. But there are certain topics that we have to be willing to discuss, even if it's uncomfortable to talk about. True change can't come about if we aren't willing to take those steps. So I think that is where I will end this particular episode. I I actually did come back and record this a couple times near or the ending part of it. Um, between the last time and now, well, I went to have lunch a couple of days ago. Yes, days, because it took me that long to get back to this again. Because in the process of making lunch, I guess the only thing I can think of is I spilled some oil down the side of a pan or pot. And before I knew it, the pot was on fire and my husband is out in the kitchen right now putting up a new cabinet or hood for the stove because it it felt like the whole stove was on fire at the time. It was maybe about half of it was covered and it destroyed the hood above my stove and the cabinet right above that. And the ceiling will the whole ceiling will just need to be repainted because, you know, it, it's not worth it just to paint that section because that the section that was singed and had soot was quite large. So I, I just think the whole thing will have to be done. Again, um, I will actually say I was proud of myself in the point that I didn't panic. Um, I was looking for the cat because I knew he had to be frightened, but at the same time I couldn't leave the fire that literally was shooting up from that pan to the ceiling. And you know that I was able to actually get it out the first time I got the cat into a different room with the window open so you know he wasn't around any smoke and then I came out and something from inside the hood of the above the stove fell down and it was still on fire and it ignited one of the towels that I had used to, you know suffocate the fire uh, yeah there's just a little part of a towel left and it started that on fire and that that piece from inside of the hood of the stove just did not want to stop like like burning um so there's a lot of cleanup. Um, I'm fortunate in that my husband, he actually had remodeled the kitchen a couple of years ago because we had bought the home five or six years ago, and I'm not sure if the kitchen had ever been updated. And again, grateful because he went through making sure we had, you know, more modern things. He did it all of them all himself, but there was some type of I'm not even sure what it's called, but it helped with fireproofing and waterproofing. And thank goodness he did. Um, so I'm just, I'm very grateful right now that things were not any worse than they were, that my kids weren't home. But we also have two nice big new fire extinguishers that are, look to be very easy to use. And I'm hoping we can get, can get everything set for having dinner on Sunday. I still want to try to get one more episode out by the end of the year because I've been wanting to do this one particular episode um, and you know, the 18th anniversary is actually coming up before the end of the year and just to kind of get the names out there again so that if anybody has information to come forward on, um, on it was on some murders that took place the day after Christmas at a casual mail store up in Wilmington, Delaware. And as time passes by, sometimes relationships between 
people change, meaning someone who might have been willing to, you know, stay quiet at the time may not be quite so willing now. Or every time we discuss a case like this, even if it's considered a cold case, maybe just something that someone says or hears may be a reminder. So I, I just want to get that done and get the information out again. So, you know, again, if you just think of something, if you're from the area or were from the area, um, but two young people, a 22-year-old and an 18-year-old, Jessica Watson and Matthew Maserato, were both killed just doing their jobs. And even though we see it every day, it's something that we, again, still need to keep addressing that we're not going to forget that even if 18 years has passed, there are still people affected every day by the loss of these two young people who never had the chance to live their lives, 22 and 18. And just by doing their jobs, they didn't get to go home to their families. So I will be working you know, between now and then to try to get the information out and post their pictures on the Facebook page and a link to the episode once I have all of that done. Thank you all for hanging in there with me today. Um, I'm sorry if I was a little bit all over the place near the end of the episode, but I do have a lot of thoughts when it comes to how address how to address mental health issues and also understanding it's not a one-size-fits-everybody approach. And it's trying to make sure everybody... Um, everybody's rights are respected and the ability to stay safe and secure also are protected. All right. If I don't get to talk to you beforehand, if you do celebrate any holidays this year, I hope everyone does have a safe and happy holiday and I will talk to you all soon. Bye.